Today's reading is Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, 25, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It can be found on page 4 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as up on the screen. This is God's word. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The word of the Lord. Um, pray with me. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know what's funny. What's funny? Um, scan, scan our hearts, God, and know our souls. Search for us when we hide. Find us. Too often I am unaware of how my busyness distracts me from living authentically and present. I stack one thing on another in hopes of making myself better, successful, happy, Instead, I blind myself from seeing you and your kingdom. Open my eyes that I may try to hide. So when I try to hide, I can see. Make me see so that my eyes are open to you. Amen. Um, on the way over uh, to church, my wife and I we were talking about how, no matter how nervous I get in, in speaking here, um, this audience is so gracious that I could, just short of saying anything, you know, majorly heretical. Um, you guys are, are so, so kind. Um, but hopefully, no heresy, we'll, we'll, we'll get past that. Um, but this leads to a, a really profound thing that happens in, in our world. Um, people are afraid to public speak. I teach high school speech and debate, and high schoolers are afraid to public, to public speak. This is just kind of a reality. Standing on stage, speaking to a bunch of people, that's, that's really scary. In fact, most people are afraid to speak in front of an audience, and they're afraid um, of most other things, snakes included. Jerry Seinfeld put it, put it this way. 
according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. Death is number two. Um, does, does that seem right? This means to the average person, if you have to go to a funeral, you'd be better off in the casket than giving the eulogy. It's scary out there, folks. It's scary to speak in front of an audience. And I think that the higher the stakes, the scarier it becomes. Let me paint a scene for you. Imagine this. It's the final moments of the night. The bright and warm lights have been on for hours, and the crowd, despite the show, are ready to go home. It's come down to this. A final moment between contestants whose hard work is coming to an end. The moment gets nearer. The anticipation builds, and the recipient's hearts begin to race. The presenter thinks to himself, do not screw it up. Maintain discipline. The envelope is passed. <laughs> the anticipation builds as the audience leans forward in anticipation. The envelope is finally open. The speaker looks at the name, then at the crowd, breathes in, and the winner is, and John Travolta mispronounces the name. And Steve Harvey says the wrong name. And Kanye West interrupts Taylor Swift's acceptance speech. Well, that's kind of different, but it's still really uncomfortable for everyone to watch. But maybe you saw it last weekend. Most recently, the Oscar for Best Picture went to the wrong movie. When this happens, especially when the stakes are high, like the Miss Universe pageant or the Oscars, two things happen. First, utter chaos on stage. And two, Fear in the audience's heart. We feel for them. We say that. I feel for you. I, I feel bad for you. We want to hide for them. We want to run away for them. We want to take away their shame and embarrassment they might be feeling. And the old advice that people give to those who are afraid to speak in public, picture them naked, has been flipped. The speaker feels naked and the audience just wants to, to clothe them. Both parties are aware, naked and afraid. And what's, what's at the core of these mistakes? Maybe it's not for Kanye, um, because Kanye is, is Kanye, but it's awareness that something went wrong. And maybe it's in the midst of these moments that our fight or flight instinct kicks in um, for those speakers. But generally for us and for the audience, we want to flee ourselves. We want to flee for them. We want to hide. And this story is entrenched with that. It's entrenched with awareness, awareness of the knowledge of good and evil, awareness of nakedness, awareness of their fear. And I'm positive that this is the reason why we continue to go back to this story. Because this is the beginning of a story. This is the inciting incident that propels us into the rest of the Bible. It asks us to confront the gospel and humbles us to live a new normal. And maybe this is the reason why the story continues to get retold by our, our best poets and playwrights and authors and visualized by our sculptors and painters. I mean, just take a look. There we go. There's a, a, a medieval painting of this story, Adam and Eve, uh, compared to this brilliant red background. We continue to tell the story. Or what about this one, Michelangelo's? Here we have the, the difference, the, the tension between the story that, that we heard today. Um, you can really get the humanness, the humanity of these characters that are being painted. What about this one? This is um, a painting inspired by John Milton's Paradise Lost. You, you get the fear and the anxiety of what's happening inside of this. And certainly you get 
the awareness. Or about this one, a contemporary impressionist painting, where just the very essence of what's happening inside of the story is, is being told in the impression of Adam and Eve. All of that extra fluff is, is falling off, and here we get these two people aware of their circumstances. There is something in the story that stirs us to become aware of ourselves, our neighbors, the other. But those are the good parts that are able to come from the story. The other side of this, the opposite, those lengths in which we are able to self-sabotage, destroy, lie, be deceived, deceive someone else, throw someone under the bus. This is the opposite of awareness. But what's the opposite of awareness? Unawareness, ignorance, oblivion. I think the opposite of of awareness inside of this text is shame. These are the tensions in the text, shame and awareness. And in the midst of these tensions, Adam and Eve are naked and afraid, looking to be clothed. Well, let's get naked. It happened. God instructed Adam to avoid this one tree. Adam told Eve to avoid this one tree. They don't avoid the one tree. And moreover, they eat the fruit from the tree. And their eyes are open, they're aware, and they are naked and ashamed. That shame, that's a word that permeates throughout our culture. Take a scroll through the internet and you'll find that we're really good at public humiliation. BuzzFeed and Facebook are filled with articles about how people are shaming others in the worst possible way. But on the other side of that, we feel insecure. Insecurity shows up all over the place too. And the balance of shame and insecurity are bound together that lead towards paralysis and fear. Because I don't need to search for the word shame on BuzzFeed to know that people shame others. I've been on the internet. I also don't need the help of someone else to shame me into insecurity. When it's midnight and I finish the third and final sleeve of Oreos, the light of the TV shines out my shame. Or when I finish watching the final Harry Potter film after watching all eight movies in one sitting, there's nothing magical about that. And don't even get me started uh, where the road of tacos end and gluttony begins. Shame becomes the perfect device that leads us towards deception. It traps our human fragility and individuality. When we shame other people, we assert control over them. When shame controls us, we lose our identity. And either way, our image is distorted and contorted into echoes and ghosts of what we should be. The other day, a student of mine, um, we, we were talking, and this high school junior asked me, when is the right time to tell a girl you like her? And this student asked all sorts of big questions like that. Um, what is love? what's faith, what's justice. He asked these large, these large looming questions, and I know that they're going to come. So anytime he asks me these questions, I always tell him the first thought that comes to my mind, even if I don't necessarily think that it's true. So he asked me, when is the right time to, to tell a girl you like her? And I said, immediately. Um, and he said, what? Um, but the student is filled with, with questions like that. Um, our conversation continued. Um, and as it continued, he told me that He's nervous to tell this particular girl that he likes her. He has feelings for her. Um, And one of the the reasons for this is that he doesn't like his body. 
He doesn't like his personality. He wants to be like this other boy who's skinnier and more mysterious, a real like high school James Dean type. He wanted to change because then he might have the confidence or the build or the identity to finally tell her the truth. We believe all sorts of stuff like that, the dark and desperate lies that hide our identity. We're naked and we're afraid. Okay, but when we talk about being naked and afraid, we're not talking about my wedding night. So let's not, let's not go there. <laughs> but it is interesting that the result is easy pickings. Man, easy pickings. Um, but it is, it is interesting that the result of this mysterious tree, whose fruit leads to the knowledge of good and evil, makes Adam and Eve aware of each other. And then they see that they're naked. And then they're afraid. Because at the core of all the facades and mistakes that we put up, we're naked and we're afraid. When I'm taking a shower, I don't think of myself as being naked. I'm just there cleaning myself. In the flesh, in the buff, all nude. But throw me outside and I will be terrifying. Exposure is terrifying. And that's the naked truth, right? But Adam and Eve notice each other. Why do they notice? Aren't they the only ones in the garden? Why are they so aware of each other? I mean, the animals probably don't care that they're naked. My cat hardly cares when I come home, let alone if, I'm, if I step out of the shower. But there's this fear in this passage that almost immediately exposes Adam and Eve, and they get dressed. Haphazardly and clumsily, they find the, the, the closest thing possible to cover up their parts. Um, they grab a pile of leaves. They grab the thing that eventually dry, wilt, and crumble, the fragile and brittle leaves will soon disintegrate, and they, they will soon need to be replaced. And later, barriers and structures will need to be built to protect themselves and keep the warmth in. And after that, the internet will be invented in order to connect the world to cat videos and to avoid talking to people face to face. They're exposed to the elements, the coldness, the bitterness, the dryness, and they need to be covered. There's something primal in this story that continues to draw us back to this couple. A collective consciousness that Carl Jung would probably say that resonates in our minds that, that we share together. Maybe it's self-preservation. So there's this reality show. I don't know if you've, if you've heard of it. Reality is probably not the right word. Um, it's called Naked and Afraid. The premise is really simple. There are two people, complete strangers, a man and a woman, sent into the wilderness to survive. Naked. Their job is simple, to find food, water, shelter, clothes, if they're lucky, and survive for 21 days. Seven seasons this show has been on. Seven seasons. It's bizarre. It's campy. It's awkward. And, and most of all, it's really boring. They complain for most of the show about how cold and hungry they are. And there are so many bugs. In fact, they should probably rename the show and call it Inconvenient Bug Bites and Where to Scratch Them. But what is so interesting about this show is, is how innate the need is for self-preservation. Protect at all costs. But the problem with self-preservation doesn't stop with Adam and Eve covering their parts. The couple hides from God. Adam throws Eve under the bus, which probably should have been the first divorce, Eve continues the same scapegoat that Adam started. The, the couple's brokenness doesn't end. Their fear compounds on itself with each failure to tell the truth. 
I wonder how far fear drives us to self-preservation and pride. What am I not willing to confess to save face? Do I look weak when I'm compassionate? When I lose, what will I lose when I put others' needs above my own? Why can't I be funny like that guy? Good-looking like that gal? Happy? Have a family? Be successful? Wealthy? Well-off? If I could just be like that person. When I fail and my pride and honor and courage is at stake, can I go back to my friends, family, community and confess? Will they bring me back into the, into the fold? It's clear that at the end of this chapter, Adam and Eve have both been brought into the lie and need something that they cannot provide. They seek the things they do not own yet. Schadenfreude, hopefully I said that right. Schadenfreude is a German word. Um, it means to take delight and pleasure in another person's misfortune. Leave it to the Germans to come up with a word like that. But this is what God does not do in this story. He does the opposite of it. He doesn't take pleasure in the misfortune of Adam and Eve. No, he does, that's, the, that's the very opposite of what he does. While Adam and Eve are naked and, and afraid, sewing leaves together behind the, the reality camera, God is doing something else. He clothes them. He steps into his brand new creation and he kills one of his own brand new animals and he covers the couple up. He does what they can't do, what they're unable to do. He gives clothes that are going to last. And giving clothes is always a really tricky thing to do and receiving clothes almost seems to be worse because the risk of giving clothes to someone um, is not knowing... The, the style of that person, the size of that person, the fit of that person. Um, and we all know that we get it wrong when we give clothes to someone. I can think of sweaters that my grandma gave to me that were like, Grandma, no, no one's going to wear this. Um, and it goes wrong, and the sweater goes in the back of the closet, and um, in a few years it'll get donated, and that's the risk, and it's wasted, right? But instead, God knows their size. He knows what's going to fit them. He knows what they need. One writer wrote, Adam and Eve have just rebelled with, with disastrous consequences, and God's first reaction is to cover up their embarrassment. I think this is why, this is the reason we return to the story. It needs an ending, right? We can't stop here. We aren't satisfied with Adam and Eve being left with some leafy clothes, and when God makes the clothes, we get satisfied a little bit more. This is the beginning of the larger biblical narrative. It's the beginning of our, of our own journey. Our world is broken. You are broken. I am broken. And I am too stubborn to admit the depths and complexities of that brokenness. My selfishness, my pride, my pretentiousness, aloofness disguised as faux intellectualism. We continue to come back to the story not because of how different we are to this couple, but because of our similarities. We fail to confess, and we presume that we can make it on our own, that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But our presumptions wilt, crumble, disintegrate. They decompose before our eyes. Because the journey of the Christian life does not begin with presumption, 
begins with confession. Right before the dramatic scene in this garden, Augustine wrote it in Confessions, when my wounds were touched by your healing fingers, I might discern and distinguish what a difference there is between presumption and confession, between those who saw wherever they were to go, yet saw not the way, and the way which leads not only to a vision, but to inhabit the blessed house. This is why we spend time thinking and talking about Lent. We take stock of ourselves and we fix our gaze and vision on Easter. At the end of this section, God kills his creation. He kills an animal and he clothes his people. But we look towards Easter because that's the better way of being clothed. That's the better way of living. That's the new normal that happens. The more, we be, the more we confess, the more we become aware. And the more we become aware, the more we know that we are naked. The more that we know that we are naked, the more we learn that the gospel will clothe us in grace, a new vision and a new way to view ourselves. In writing about this story, C.S. Lewis wrote that the ultimate aim of this Christian journey and this story is the long, joyful, and at times hard road of calling our souls our own, a new identity, new clothes. The end of Paradise Lost, John Milton um, paints an image of Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden. This world outside the garden is cold and harsh. But even in the midst of this fear and toil and turmoil, they know that they are going to be a part of God's story. And if we can look at this painting inspired by, by Milton's epic poem, um, Humanity is so small. The perspective is so large. Look at how far they need to go. Look at that journey. I can, I can imagine that Adam and Eve are entering into this new place, leaving this garden, entering into this, this dark world, knowing that they've just been clothed by God, that it fits them. They don't have to make sh shabby clothes out of, out of leaves. In the worship guide, there's um, uh, a section from the end of, of Paradise Lost. Um, it reads, Some natural tears they dropped and wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose. Their place to rest and providence their guide. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow. Through Eden took their solitary way. In Milton's Paradise Lost, despite the fact that Adam and Eve have, have fallen and fallen hard, despite the fact that they've recognized their nakedness, they've looked at their fear, and God has clothed them, they know where they're going. There's this brilliant image of this, this vision that God gives Eve of, of what's going to happen, what's, what's going to come from her, a direct path and story into the redemption and to the, the new creation of, of the universe. Their place of rest and providence, their guide. My friends, please, open your eyes. Confess. See that you are being drawn into the same story. Pray with me. We confess, God, that there are times when we feel like the younger son, squandering our souls. And at times we feel like the older son, working our souls into a frenzy. Open our eyes to you. 
God, you are the Father that waits with robe and ring in hand, ready to clothe and comfort. Open our eyes so we can see your story. Amen.